All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Messianic Prophecy Study, uh, continuing along the lines of uh, going through the Old Testament Messianic Prophecies, looking at the uh, progression of the revelations that God gave, starting all the way back in Genesis and moving into uh, later on in the Old Testament about who this, uh, this Messiah guy was going to be. Um, different prophecies dealing with where he's going to come from, what he was going to do, what lineage, uh, different roles he was going to play. Uh, so, you know, really a good, uh, a good thing for us in regards to proving the Bible to be the Word of God, uh, really kind of a, a, of essential aspect there because, <clears throat> you know, thinking about people who, who were atheists or people who actually started out as theists to move to atheists, uh, atheism, um, saying that God doesn't exist, really, they're going to have to go a really, really far, uh, long way to take the, the embodiment of messianic uh, expectation that's found in the Old Testament and explain that away. Uh, really not going to be possible, especially with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, making sure that all of these things were, uh, were codified in the scripture before the time of Christ. You know, these weren't gone back through and edited, um, edited back in. Uh, one of the, the, the primary objective proofs that we have uh, for the Bible being uh, the Word of God, therefore having a God who wrote them in the first place. Now, one of the things I forgot about last week when we were looking at the, the priest that was going to come and uh, be the faithful one, uh, not going to disappoint God in any way, uh, we were looking at uh, the, the lines of Ithamar and Eleazar, and then the prophecy against Eli, how Eli's house was going to be uh, uh, kind of destroyed and um, he's going to be removed from the priesthood. Uh, the one piece of the puzzle that I forgot to bring in, 1 Chronicles 24.3, which showed that Abiathar, remember Abiathar and Zadok kind of ran simultaneously there for a little while, and then Solomon deposed Abiathar. Uh, and Zadok became the, the chief uh, priest there, and he was from the line of um, Eleazar. <clears throat> uh, and Eleazar was the line that was going to be going through. So we have Aaron, then his son Eleazar, then his son Phinehas, right? Um, and we found out that Abiathar was actually from the line of Ithamar. That wasn't even the chosen line that was supposed to be the high priesthood. So all that being said, the, the passage I forgot to show you, last week to kind of tie everything together. First Chronicles 24, 3, and shows that Abiathar was of Ithamar and Zadok was of Eleazar. So if you're coming into this one brand new, that's not going to make any sense to you. I'd recommend you, you listen to the podcast before this one, and that way it'll make a lot of sense. <clears throat> All right, so today we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what we're going to be discussing today is something called the Nathan Oracle. So what we have here is, is the prophet Nathan, uh, the one that confronted David uh, after his sin with Bathsheba, uh, told him that story about the, the, the man who had all the sheep and then the guy who had the, the little baby lamb and how the man with the many sheep came and took the baby lamb and, uh, you know, David was furious with that and said, that man ought to die. And Nathan confronts the king and says, you are the man. You know, remember how all that story broke down there. Same Nathan is dealing now <clears throat> with the line of David and the progression of the, 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 
the kingly tribe here and who was going to be uh, the one that was going to have the lineage that was going to endure. So what we're dealing with here, a prophecy that God's making concerning the house of David. And this one's a little bit different. This one um, is probably going to be, it's going to take us a little bit more to kind of put it together. And normally I'm staying away from the ones um, just because for time's sake, not for any other reason, but for time's sake, the ones that, that are more of an allusion to prophecy uh, that you can't really, you know, you, you wouldn't have a New Testament quotation that says, aha, that's a prophecy. Um, but the reason I'm, I'm focusing on this one is there are some New Testament quotations that kind of deal with this, uh, but it, it sets the stage for why we're expecting a descendant of David, a son of David, to be the Messiah. Okay, so this is why we're going over this one. Um, and I also think that properly understood, properly interpreted by the New Testament, it kind of adds a lot of flavor here as to um, a little bit of the, uh, the physical torment and torture that, that Jesus was going to go through. It starts back here. Remember, that whole concept started actually in Genesis 3 when it talks about how he was going to crush the head of the serpent and was going to bruise him on the heel. So the, the physical pain that was going to take place during the crucifixion is alluded to there. We're going to see something a little bit more here, but it's going to look a little bit different. And we're going to have to go a little bit further down the road to be able to uh, fully make sense of what we're going to read here today. So <clears throat> that being said, we're going to start uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse number 12. So what he says here, he says, when your days are complete, he's talking, Nathan's talking to David here. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So some really good stuff in there. And, and we might think, first blush, that he's talking about Solomon the son of David that started or that sat upon the throne. And you wouldn't be wrong. And we'll, we'll see here in a little bit. So one of the reasons that this oracle, this prophecy is so important is that it sets the foundation of all that the Bible says about David and the Messiah. Okay. It marks a new direction, a, a beginning of a new direction in Messianic prophecy. Um, you know, we, we, when we're looking at the history of everything before, we saw that the line um, of the Messiah was going to uh, possibly go through Shem. Then it was going to go through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah, right? We saw that back there in Genesis 49. Here now we're seeing the family out of the tribe of Judah that it's going to be belonging to, which is David. So we see here when he says... <clears throat> where he says uh, there in verse 12, I will raise up your descendant after you. Okay, we see that word seed there again, literally, right? That's what that word descendant is, seed. So the seed here, as we're gonna see as interpreted by David and Solomon, 
more than likely in- included Solomon. But this is speaking of someone much bigger than Solomon. Um, this is speaking of, of someone who, who was going to make sure that the throne stayed in the family of David forever. So the way that we're going to kind of take a look at this, based upon the way that Solomon and David interpret it, and the way that the New Testament interprets it, is that this word seed, even though it uses the, the uh, singular pronoun, because it says, um, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. Even though it uses a first or a sorry, a, a singular pronoun, seems to indicate that this is going to be a little bit bigger uh, than this. But the ultimate fulfillment, I think, of the hymn here is going to be in the Messiah. And I'll, I'll try to prove my point here as, as we go forward. So David's seed, uh, as we look here in verse 12, is going to do a couple of different things, right? Number one, it's going to succeed him on the throne. And number two, uh, he's going to build a house for God's name. And both of these are going to last forever. <clears throat> now, here's what we find. The physical descendants of David, did they succeed him on the throne? Absolutely. Uh, up until Zedekiah, right? So David's the first. We go through those, those kings. We come to Zedekiah. He's the last king to sit upon the throne. Did the descendants of David build temples or build a house? Yes. As a matter of fact, two of them built physical temples. We have Solomon who built the first temple, Solomon's temple, as we like to call it. The second temple was built by a guy named Zerubbabel, who was also a direct descendant of David. And there's prophecies actually in Zechariah that that Zerubbabel is the signet ring of God, kind of reestablishing the Davidic line uh, even though Zerubbabel wasn't necessarily a king, he was the governor at that time and was the founder of the second temple. Now, Herod uh, expanded upon it, renovated it, uh, built it higher. So by the time Jesus came, uh, it was known as Herod's temple, but it was Saul, or as, uh, Zerubbabel's temple uh, as far as the, the foundation and the, and, the, and the basic building. So those two things are listed as what the descendant of David is going to do. Now, let's flip over to 1 Chronicles 28 for a second. 1 Chronicles 28, and we're going to see here really quickly how David applies this. 1 Chronicles 28, and let's look at verse number 6. So this is David speaking as he's addressing about the, uh, addressing the temple here. It says, he said to me, Your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts, for I had chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances, as is done now. So David clearly states that this is referencing Solomon. But if you actually look back in 2 Samuel, Solomon's not mentioned. Okay, So this is actually David's interpretation of what God is doing. Now, we also know that David was a prophet. Acts chapter 2 lets us know that. So I don't doubt David's interpretation here. I'm just saying that David's interpretation wasn't full, uh, he, he didn't fully understand what the, the prophecy entailed. And we see that a lot of times in the Old Testament. Um, 
you know, maybe there was a prophecy that that's made <clears throat> and what ends up taking place is it can have an immediate application, but it also has something uh, to do with, with Messianic times, New Covenant times. That happens frequently. So it wouldn't surprise us if the um, person interpreting it didn't understand the full scope of what it is that the prophecy entailed. Just one of those things that, that takes place. But David clearly sees that this is in reference to Solomon, right? So then let's flip over to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. And let's see another aspect here. So at the temple dedication, 1 Kings chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse number uh, 17. This is Solomon speaking. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. So, and then let's keep going here for a little bit. He says, now the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. As I have risen in place of my father, David, to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, uh, the God of Israel. Okay. So Solomon is interpreting this as the dwelling. And we go up back up a little bit further to verse 12. Uh, head back up to first chronicle or sorry first kings chapter 8 verse 12 says then solomon said the lord had said that he would dwell in the thick cloud i have surely built you a lofty house a place for your dwelling forever so that is solomon's understanding of this whole thing so the question we ask is yes solomon said forever but does that mean that that was the place that god was planning on dwelling forever well we know that's not true right so this is Solomon's interpretation of it. We know for a fact, especially by the benefit of hindsight, that this was not going to be God's permanent dwelling place, right? How do we know that? I mean, think about it. If, if, if that was going to be God's permanent dwelling place and that's what God meant, would God have destroyed it when 586 came around? No, he would have had the Babylonians come in, maybe, maybe uh, do some discipline, leave them alone, and then, you know, um, people would have repented and, you know, everything would have been fine. And the temple would still be standing today. But no, that's not the case. We know that. And then the temple that Zerubbabel built after they came back from the exile in, the one, in that same temple that Herod uh, expanded, was that the one they were talking about? Well, no, absolutely not. 70 AD, the Romans come in and they destroy that temple. Um, and we have now been almost 2,000 years uh, with no temple. And as a matter of fact, for quite a while now, uh, well over 1,000, with, with the Dome of the Rock sitting there uh, instead of a physical temple. So from the benefit of hindsight, we kind of take a look at these types of things and say, well, what is it that God's talking about? One of the problems that comes about is the concept of forever. You know, one of the things we have to recognize, and, and this is one of the, the struggles that I think uh, kind of comes in when we're talking about uh, biblical passages. Hebrew is not English. English is not Hebrew. Uh, Greek is not English. Greek is not, uh, not um, or English is not Greek. So we, <laughs> Greek's not Hebrew. They're, they're very, very different languages. So one of the things that, that's kind of nice 
is, uh, and we'll see this in other prophecies, we have a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was before Christ called the Septuagint. Sometimes when you're kind of looking at New Testament passages of quotations of the Old Testament, and we go back into the Old Testament, we find that they're different. A lot of times the writers are quoting from the Septuagint. That's going to be uh, what we're going to see next week uh, in Psalm 8 when we start getting into the Messianic prophecies in the Psalms. But in this particular case, we see that Hebrew word forever, and we think of it as the English word forever, which means forever. You know, I, I you kind of liken it to the, you know, I, husbands and wives, right? You know, when, when they're young and in love and they say, oh, I love you, I'm going to love you forever. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not, right? <laughs> it's it's kind of one of those things where it is definitely not going to be forever because, you know, stuff ends at death, right? Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily the case. We're not talking about eternity all the time. The term forever in Hebrew, depending upon the context, can mean literally forever or for a long time. Right. So it depends on the context. When we see that that concept that Solomon just said, this is going to be your house forever. Well, we know that's not true. But then we go back to our foundational passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it says, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, how do we know which forever he's talking about here? Is it the same sense that uh, Solomon meant forever? You know, a long period of time. I'm pretty sure Solomon didn't think that that was going to last till the end of time, right? So how do we know? Well, let's head over to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. And... Sometimes what you'll notice, I'm going to give you a couple of other texts here. Um, you know, say like Isaiah uh, 42, and you don't have to turn there. Let me just read it for you real quick. Isaiah 42, and this is, I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Um, in Isaiah 42, 14, he says, I have kept silent. This is uh, God. I've kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman I, uh, in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. In that beginning where he says, I have kept silent for a long time, that's that word for forever. So in this case, it's almost kind of, you know, like, like a, you know, like, like a figure of speech, almost like an exaggeration, not, not a lying exaggeration, but, you know, emphasis. I've kept silent for forever, a long time. In other words, my patience with you, nation of Israel, I've been very patient for a long time. So that word forever can is used right there. And the translators recognize it's not meaning forever. It's meaning a long time. But here in Psalm 89, he's talking about the house of David. And so let's kind of check out what he's, he's talking about here um, with the house of David. And let's head over to... Uh, I want to get some context here. So let's go to, to verse number 19. Psalm 89, 19. He says, Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I, will, uh, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. 
With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep forever. Sorry, sorry, my loving kindness I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Do you see the difference? God's using other kind of analogies here to show what he means by this forever aspect. And if we keep going here, uh, verse 30, he says, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquities with stripes. This is going to be important here in a moment. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn in my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the faith and the witness in the sky is faithful. Sure seems like he's making... Uh, some emphasis there as to how long this is going to last. He's saying, as as is in heaven, uh, as the sun, as the moon. The sun and the moon are going to last until Jesus comes back. So until the, when this physical reality is over, that's when those things end. He also mentioned, you know, strokes. So you know, the the, the rod and then stripes, <clears throat> and and we see that in some cases that did take place. The the kings were were disobedient. They were disciplined. But that concept of stripes, that should sound familiar. And, and we'll get something uh, about that here in just a little bit. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, so head back there. So we have this concept where he says, he, uh, verse 13, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay. So we look at Psalm 89, we recognize that this throne, it's not just for a long period of time, it actually is forever. So what's he referencing here? Because we know obviously that the line of David came to an end as far as the physical rule and reign. Let's head over to Luke chapter one. Let's get some... New Testament understanding on this. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And so we're going to uh, head back to verse number 26 to get the full context here. Luke 1, 26. It says, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. 
the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed in the statement, and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Does that sound familiar? Sure sounds like what we were discussing before out of 2 Samuel 7. Sure seems like what Gabriel's talking about here is the fulfillment of the prophecy that was made to David about his throne moving forward. Now, <clears throat> this isn't the, the only, you know, kind of kind of time or, or, or anything that we find Jesus being associated with David, although this is probably one of the more powerful ones. Where else is, is Gabriel, what else is he referring to here? You know, where he says, <clears throat> give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. See, this was prophesied back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the first mention of David's house reigning forever. And from that point, it is, it is perpetuated in other passages, like the Psalm 89 passage that we talked about. All right. Now let's flip over a few more places like this. And, and these are just, just things to kind of help us to you know, think a little bit, because we read over this kind of stuff all the time. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. It, he, sometimes you've got to wonder, where, where do people get, get this idea? Verse 27, Matthew 9, 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. See, So the concept of Jesus, or the Messiah, which they believe Jesus was, being the son of David, was firmly entrenched. Right, um, Matthew chapter 12. Again, just several of these real quick in a row, real fast. Um, all out of the, the Gospel of Matthew, which makes perfect sense. The Gospel of Matthew is really big on going back through the Old Testament and presenting Jesus as the one whom the Old Testament prophesied about. What better thing to do than to emphasize the concept that Jesus was the son of David? Because that's something that the Jews would have really found um, powerful and something that would have resonated with them. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, and let's go to verse 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him. So that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. See, they didn't know who Jesus was necessarily, but they're wondering if he's the son of David. They're wondering if he's the one that's coming, that's going to be the one to establish the throne. Because think about it from their perspective. They get this prophecy that the, the uh, throne's going to be established forever, that the house is going to be there forever, and yet there's no descendant of David upon the throne. We got some Edomite named Herod, right? And then we've got Rome that's actually established as, as the actual ruler of, of what's going on. So 
they're anticipating David coming, or son of David coming, and reestablishing the kingdom. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for that political, military Messiah, right? Even so much so, it was so ingrained that when Jesus was about ready to ascend in the book of Acts, he said, the disciples asked, is it at this time you're going to return the kingdom to Israel, right? They were so, so focused on this. And so David being the military one that really established this as, as the monarchy, son of David, it makes a lot of sense for them. Uh, Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. And again, I'm not necessarily going to go through all of these, uh, but in verse 21, it says, Jesus uh, went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman came from the region, or and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord Son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon possessed. This concept is so well known that the Canaanite woman understands it. That's what I'm saying. This is, this is not some little thing that's being, being brought in. The concept the Messiah was going to be the son of David was clearly established throughout the New Testament, so much so that the Canaanite lady grabbed hold of it. All right. Um, last one we're going to go through is Matthew 21. Matthew 21. And let's go to the, we're talking about the triumphal entry here. And let's take a look first off at verse number five. Uh, let's go to verse four. It said, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. See, absolutely bringing Jesus to the forefront here as the son of David. So, also, we also know that the prophecy that he's talking about to Solomon is not about physical Israel. It's not about physical descendants. How do we know that? Stay in Matthew 21. Remember the parable of the, of the landowner, um, the parable of the vineyard, you know, where the landowner rented out the vineyard um, and he expected to get some produce from it, right? <clears throat> so he... Um, sent his servants, you know, they, uh, let's see, let's, let's look at what he says here. He says, uh, verse 35, the vineyard growers took his slaves, beat one, killed another stone to third. You know, not a great response, right? Then, uh, verse 36, again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first. They did the same thing to them. It says, but afterwards he sent his son saying they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. So they took him through a mountain and killed him. So then Jesus asked an interesting question. He said, what will the owner of the vineyard do to those vine growers when he comes? And the, 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 the Pharisees, chief priests and the Pharisees, there's only one answer. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. It says, and then he will rent out the vineyard 
right, to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds in the proper season. And Jesus says something amazing right here. He brings in another prophecy that deals with this. And he, he said, Jesus said, did you never read what the scripture said? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the, the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord's marvelous in our eyes. See, and then he says something really interesting. He says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. I don't have time to go into the whole falling on the stone or having the stone fall on you, although that's a great picture. Um, everyone's going to have to deal with the cornerstone. You either do it voluntarily, you fall on it and it breaks you, and then God can put you back together again, or you let the cornerstone fall on you, scatters you like dust, and there's no putting you back together again. But the part that I want to focus on is where he says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. In verse 45, it says, the chief priests and the Pharisees understood, or when they heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. So when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. The Pharisees and chief priests understood that the kingdom of God was going to be ripped away from them and given to another nation. So it lets us also know that the ultimate fulfillment of what God's talking about in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is not a physical nation. It's not about having a physical descendant sitting on a physical throne in a physical Jerusalem, governing a physical Israel. When physic Think about this for a moment. Physical Israel in the Old Testament was more times than not in a state of apostasy and rebellion. Very few times were they actually faithful. God destroyed them in 586, brought them back, promised them that, that he would put them on their land. He did. But then, according to the parable, they saw the heir. And they said, let's, let's take it and take the inheritance. Let's kill him and take the inheritance. When they did that, they forfeited their right to be the nation of God. Forfeited it. Because what Jesus says is, I'm ripping it away from you and giving it to another nation who's going to produce the fruit of it. It's still Israel. But it's a spiritual Israel. And even though Jesus is a physical descendant of David, he reigns as a spiritual king over a spiritual house. You see? So <clears throat> forever, this nation Israel never goes away. This nation Israel is never defeated. This kingship never goes away. This king is never deposed because he always does what is faithful in the sight of God. See, so that's what we're seeing here. And, and the temple that he builds, let's think about this for a second. Let's flip over to, to John chapter 2. So that deals with the king, uh, the king and the kingdom. What about the temple? Just a couple of quick passages here to kind of kind of show the point I'm talking to. Um, Luke, or sorry, John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And let's go down, let's go down to verse number 18. It's after Jesus uh, cleansed the temple. He says, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? After they just got whooped, right? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. 
and they believed the scripture and the words which Jesus had spoken. So, what's Jesus doing here? He's in the physical temple. He just cleansed it. He says, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise or a den of thieves. Um, he said, you know, stop making my father's house a place of business in this particular one. And then he calls himself the temple. Well, well, which is it? Well, what Jesus is actually doing here, very interesting. He's letting people know that what he, the, the physical house that he's cleansing still is the house of God. But then he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. Because remember what happened when Jesus was on the cross. What happened when he said, it is finished and he died. The veil of the temple ripped, right? Exposing the Holy of Holies in that the glory of God was not there. And then when he resurrected, that's the temple, his body. Now he goes on to, to, to define the body a little bit more as we move along, as now the body of Christ is the church. But he being the firstborn from the dead was the chief cornerstone in the temple, in the kingdom that he was creating. So that resurrection from the dead was the chief cornerstone being laid in the temple. That's why he's calling himself, destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. He had the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him. He was a walking temple, just like Christians are. But he's the cornerstone that's laid in that foundation. And he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the one that's leading the way here. Then we go over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we see another aspect of this. Right, 1 Peter chapter 2. And let's uh, start in verse 4. It says, In coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices according to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. But its precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which was the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they were disobedient to the word and to this doom they were appointed. So think about this. Now what Peter's doing is he's relating the concept of the cornerstone. And again, going back to Matthew 21, the concept of the cornerstone is actually intimately related to the kingdom being ripped away from the physical Jews and given to the spiritual ones. So Jesus being the temple, being resurrected from the dead, right after he cleansed the physical temple, letting people know that that transition's taking place, that's coming. Now Peter says, you're being built up into the, into the house of God as living stones on top of this cornerstone. You're of the same stuff that Jesus is. Physical beings, now at the time Jesus was in the flesh, physical beings that are containing the spirit of God inside of them, you're being built up as a physical house. I'm sorry, as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as a house, spiritual house, sorry. Think about that. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is dealing with the kingship belonging to David 
to his descendants forever absolutely transcends Solomon. Absolutely transcends Solomon. Otherwise, why is Gabriel making that promise? And then we see the, the expectation of the people having it be the son of David. And then we see this whole concept of the kingdom being taken away and, and being established forever, even though the nation of Israel ceased to exist in 70 AD. And the whole concept of the temple also having to be forever, with the two physical temples being ripped down. And then Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 19, providing that transition point of what the temple really was. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, picking it up and saying, this is even more uh, of what Jesus was talking about there. See, so this is a really, really beautiful picture of what God's trying to get across. Okay, so now let's finish up the second part of that passage. So back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is this one is going to be a little bit interesting here. Okay. Um, the, the, the one other aspect or, uh, that I wanted to get to was the concept of correction. But there's one little piece that we have to hit before that. Okay. Verse 14. And Solomon and David both kind of applied this to him, um, uh, to, to Solomon. But it goes further than that. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me uh, forever and your throne shall be established forever. So two things I want to talk about here. Number one, that he's going, that God's actually going to be a father to this descendant that's going to, going to rule forever. And yes, David and Solomon both reference that to him, and uh, he, you know, he—that's that's accurate. That's that's fine because you know David and Solomon both said it. It's in the scripture. I believe it. Uh, not a problem there. Um, and we saw in, in Psalm eighty-nine that when the, the the descendants of David are disobedient, that God will correct them with the rods of men and with with the the stripes with stripes as well, you know, looking at a flogging. Um, I'm not familiar, and I could be wrong on this. I, I should probably go back and check it out. But off the top of my head, I'm not familiar with any king that was scourged. Okay. Now, Zedekiah had his eyes put out, <clears throat> for sure. Um, you know, Josiah died with a with a, a wound. Um, you know, Uzziah became a, a leper. Uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, Asa had disease in his feet. Uh, there, there's all kinds of, of kings that had, you know, bad things happen to him. And, you know, um, you know, Manasseh had the, the hook through the nose, right? Uh, absolutely. And, and he, he repented. Uh, so lots of things happen. But if this is only talking about Solomon, you know, it says, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. Now that word for when in Hebrew can also mean if. So instead of, you know, when, if he commits iniquity, did Solomon commit iniquity? Absolutely he did. Building temples to foreign, for forereign wives? Yeah. And, you know, and, and it says one of the last things written about him was that as many wives turned his heart away from God. Did Solomon ever get taken to the, behind the woodshed and somebody string him up and, and rack across his back uh, with, with, a, with, a, with a flog? Putting stripes on his back? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. When I, when I think of the word strokes, of the, you know, um, the strokes of the sons of men, correcting them with a rod, 
stripes, like Psalm 89 says, I immediately think of Isaiah 53. And then I immediately think of, of the Roman flagellum that was, that was raked across the, the back of Jesus Christ. See, so <clears throat> the part where, where people get hung up about this talking about Jesus, and, and I want to address this. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. That really bothers people if they're saying that's talking about Jesus because Jesus committed no sin. Absolutely. Jesus committed no sin. He committed no iniquity personally. See? But did Jesus get the penalty for sin as if he actually committed it? Yes. Here's what we have to understand about Messianic prophecy. Messianic prophecy progresses as the revelation does. Okay? God doesn't lay everything out in the front end. Imagine if God laid out back in Genesis um, that the, you know, David's going to have a descendant upon the throne forever. People would be like, who's David? You know, imagine if, if back in the time of, of Genesis in the garden, they talked about this guy Noah. I'm sorry, uh, Abraham. In that his descendants, uh, you know, in, in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, who's Abraham? See, God purposely lays this stuff out in progression over time and develops the themes. So let's think about the physical, um, the, the, the physical toll that redemption was going to have. It starts back in Genesis 3. He's going to crush the head of the serpent, but his heel is going to be bruised in the process. Here, it says when he commits iniquity, that he will be corrected with the rods of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. So as you look at it, it's like he committed the iniquity. He's bearing the punishment. You get to Isaiah 53. I mean, let's, let's just flip there for a second. It's going to be a little bit before we actually get to Isaiah 53. And everybody, you all know it pretty well. Isaiah 53. Now what Isaiah does is he takes it the next step and explains even in more detail what's actually going on. Okay, look at what he says. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This is Isaiah 53, 3. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one, uh, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Kind of almost sounds like what we just read in 2 Samuel 7. Despised, forsaken, because he committed sin, right? Well, verse 4 lets us know what's going on behind the scenes. Why was he despised and forsaken? Why was he a man of sorrows acquainted with grief? Why did we hide our face? Why, did, why was he despised and we did not esteem him? Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So when you look at it from the perspective of humanity, Jesus was the wrongdoer. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We thought he was the one that was the evildoer. That's why he's getting beaten. That's why he's getting crucified. That's why he's got the crown of thorns on his head. That's why he's suffering. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. 
And by his stripes, by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. See, those two verses are amazing at describing the substitutionary atonement that Jesus Christ was providing. See, what is actually taking place here is that from our perspective, from mankind's perspective, which is what 2 Samuel 7 is actually getting at, Jesus committed the sin. Not personally, but he took the sin upon him and he took the punishment. In his body, he bore our sins on the cross. His character was innocent of the actual committing of the sin. But he was facing the punishment as if he committed it because he had the sin on him in his body. Isaiah 53 lets us know that was our sin. And he was struck for our sin. 2 Samuel 7 doesn't get into that yet. It just lays out the concept that there is chastisement for a king. There, there is a being beaten with the rods, which Jesus was, beaten with the rods and then, then um, corrected with the strokes of the sons of men. That's all it gets into, that the king is going to be punished for sin. But then he says, But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Just like in the other prophecies we'll look at, like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. What happens after the suffering? The resurrection. The loving kindness of God was not removed. See, it was, it was firmly established on this king. Yes, this is definitely a, a reference to Solomon. Just kind of wrapping this up. Yes, definitely a reference to Solomon. But it's much, it's much deeper than that. See, it sets the stage that the Messiah is going to be a son of David. So much so that that is one of the things that Gabriel announces to Mary. It's one of the primary things on God's mind is that, that he is going to get the throne of his father, David, and his kingdom is going to be established forever. He's going to rule over Jacob forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of this, the full fulfillment of this. All of these other guys were just kind of types along the way. So I hope this was encouraging to you. And then next week as we, as we get into it, like I said, we're going to be going into Psalm 8, diving into the Psalms, uh, the Messianic prophecies in the Psalms. They're absolutely phenomenal, and there's so much rich theology in there uh, and, and some, some amazing prophecies. So next week, uh, we'll dive into that. So hope to see you then.